as has already been mentioned, but what a great blessing it is that we've each been granted to assemble on this first day of the week. It is, of course, the first Sunday in the month of July this year, and we're honored that God has seen fit to allow us the health and the other means of life to assemble as we are today to offer unto Him that which He so richly deserves, our heartfelt worship. Surely it is the case that as we come to a study of the Lord's burial today, you may give thought to the fact that how much is there to say about that? What might well be said about the placing of the body into the tomb? And yet, there is much, it would seem to me, that is worthy of reflection because there is a great deal of faith-building matters and truth connected to it. You may notice on this particular slide that's the introductory one, we have already given thought to the crucifixion. In fact, we did that. As you and I studied earlier this year in our series of lessons in which we looked at features connected to the life of Christ Himself. I would say to you, though, that as we give thought to the burial, it really is something that can be encouraging. It can be an issue connected to the fortification of our faith. And so without further delay, why don't we make these comments as we start this next slide? It would surely be easy to say that you and I, rightfully so, give a great deal of emphasis to the Lord's death. You and I do that because the Bible does. And the fact that the Lord died is a critical event in the history of humanity. It is also true that we give great emphasis to His resurrection. And again, we do that for great reason. What hope it provides to you and me. What elemental fe feature of positive thinking reminds of us in light of the resurrection. But have you ever thought about what's in between them? The Lord's death, the Lord's resurrection, the burial was in between. I've invited you to notice several verses of Scripture that highlight each one of those we've considered already. On the one hand, the death. On the other hand, the resurrection. But we're going to devote the remainder of our time today to reflect upon the burial. In fact, in order to begin that, could I invite you to think about a typical visit to a funeral home? I realize there might be slight variations, and there might be slight distinctions, but it's not unusual for a circumstance to proceed somewhat like this. The family arrives at the position of the funeral home. Arrangements have been made for a certain casket. It might be rather nice mahogany. Probably on the inside, it will have the particular features of comfort connected to the cloth that's arranged within it. In addition to all of that, it will certainly have the consideration often at the cemetery, a vault has been prepared for it. So that the features of weather, erosion, and otherwise will not offer features connected to otherwise deterioration of the body. But you see, that's not what we read about concerning Jesus' burial. We don't read about a mahogany casket. We don't read about a burial vault. We don't read about the other things that would often go along with a rather well-arranged funeral processional. We don't read about any of that. What we read about is what was read in our hearing by Brother Dennis a few minutes ago. Now, the other gospel accounts, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, have a few details to add, but the principal ones have now been set before us. As you look about the middle of that slide, 
The Old Testament had foretold somewhat of the Lord's burial in Isaiah 53, verses 9 and 10. And you and I will note somewhat of that set of verses shortly. But you and I can be impressed if the God of heaven saw fit to maintain prophecy connected to it. That was a noteworthy event. Not only that, the New Testament also will remind us, even after the fact of several things about the burial of the Lord's body, that will be very meaningful and significant to you and me. Could I remind us as we close that slide that the very crux of the gospel, that which the gospel is, 1 Corinthians 15 tells us it's the death, the burial, and the resurrection of the Lord. The burial is included. The burial of the Lord was a critical part of what Paul preached in light of the gospel. And so you and I have every right to give emphasis to and to give an appreciation of the nature of that burial. In Mark 14, verse number 50, the apostles had fled because you and I now appreciate the fact it wasn't them that buried him. I wonder what does the Word of God have to say about the burial? This next slide will lead us to note the following. There were two men who primarily took the load. They took the initiative, if you please, to see to it in regard to the burial of the body of our Lord. As you and I read about them earlier, we noticed that their names were these, Joseph first, but it was not any ordinary Joseph. May I say it wasn't an arbitrary one. Joseph was a fairly common name in the time of the Lord. You and I remember that Joseph was the name of Jesus' stepfather, but we also notice it was the name of a man of Arimathea. And it was this man who had a part to play in the burying of the body of the Lord. I find it a bit interesting that today we don't know exactly where the village of Arimathea was. There's a little bit of uncertainty connected to that, but this much we know. This Joseph of Arimathea was apparently well enough to do that these descriptions that we're now about to read were very much the case. In addition to him, there was Nicodemus. We're much more familiar with Nicodemus. We've at first encountered him in John chapter 3. We encounter him again in John chapter 7. And now we encounter yet again this man who first came to the Lord by night and asked of him some interesting matters, and the Lord had a great conversation with him. Surely it is in that light. Some of those comments on the slide summarize what we can say. Joseph was a rich man, an honorable man. Would you first be impressed? He was willing to invest a portion connected to that which he had in light of providing for the burial of our Lord. Not only that, he, it is said that he was a just man. He was a counselor. He was one who waited for the kingdom according to the text. He was a secret disciple. I believe you and I could say in light of those adjectives and those descriptions that much in a positive way could be said about this man called Joseph. As far as Nicodemus, surely enough a man who was called a ruler of the Jews, he came to Jesus by night. And in addition to that, he even defended the cause of the Lord against those who were a bit on the unjust side. He had a role, too, in the burial of our Master. I say all of that to say these two 
And the work in which they endeavored, the work which they invested, that's worthy of our thought, and we shall do that starting next. On this next slide, why don't we now invite some thought to the details that the Word of God presents to us as it relates to the burial. Our precious Savior died on Thursday afternoon, and for you and I, it was about at the 3 p.m. hour. We garner those pieces of events and those appreciations when you and I recall that three hours of darkness were basically ending at that time. And surely at that moment we realized the darkness was a reminder of the terrible and tragic decision that the human family had made to put to death the only perfect one that had ever lived among them. The only one that was the Son of God. And surely in that light, you and I recognize that a Roman soldier in John 19, verse number 34, this Roman soldier had pierced the gentle side of Christ with that spear and out had come blood and water. It is at that point we virtually come to where the reading of the morning began. You may recall that Pilate is the man whose name is now mentioned. I've summarized the features on that slide. First of all, Pilate called a centurion, the one who had role to play in the confirmation of the Lord's death. I would like to at least interject a comment at this point. On occasion, you will read those who make the assertion, Jesus just fainted, or He dropped into a coma, or maybe He swooned, but He didn't die. May I say how false those assertions are? The Roman people had a person whose job it was was to confirm the death of those who were now to find themselves in position of burial. Pilate called for the confirmation of the one whose job it was to give credence to that death. You and I know today how important that same kind of thing is. When an individual passes away, someone has to confirm the death. Well, so too it was then. And those people knew well their job. Jesus was dead. He had passed from the scenes of this life. In the words of the King James Version, He had given up the ghost. But so it was that Pilate gave the body to Joseph. Mark 14, 45 highlights that truth. Just as surely as here, Joseph had come and asked for it. You might now note with me this. Nicodemus, it says, brought myrrh and aloes. He brought these spices to anoint the body. It would seem that Nicodemus and Joseph were working as a team in this. Now, the Bible doesn't come out and overtly testify to the details of that, but it seemed that each contributed that which was necessary to bring about the final burial. One next thing might be this. The body of the Lord was wrapped in linen and placed in a tomb where no one had ever been laid. Could I point out the significance of that latter element too? You and I know that the coming resurrection of Jesus was going to be a mighty event and one that needed not to be confused in any way with anything else. If the Lord had been laid in places where other bodies had been, several things could have then been perhaps claimed 
you and I recall what happened in 2 Kings 13 when the bones of a certain dead person contacted the bones of Elisha. You and I remember that a kind of resurrection happened then. So you'll notice that certain things might have been claimed under the delusion of the moment. But because the Lord's body was placed where no one had ever been, you and I know certain other things would have been perfectly excluded from any possibilities. Not only that, look at what's next on that slide. A stone was rolled over the entrance of that tomb, Matthew 27 reminds us. That would easily have prevented any others from coming and altering or changing or stealing in any way that body. Women, furthermore, watched where that body was placed. Could I invite another element of emphasis? You and I know later that on that first day of the week, there are some who have actually made the claim Mary and the others went to the wrong place. They went to where Jesus had never been buried. Notice how wrong that has to be. The women watched where they placed the body of Jesus. They knew where He had been buried. They knew where that location was. All of these things that men have often claimed, at least on occasion, fall beneath the weight of what the Word of God testifies to each of us. At this point, now that we have at least highlighted some of those details, could we highlight a few lessons, a few observations connected to the burial of the body of our Savior? When you and I give thought to the burial, first of all, might we initially make note of what a great work it really was? In fact, I would in fact begin that discussion like this. There were two thieves crucified with Jesus. What about their bodies? What happened to them? Where did they end up? What was their final disposition? Might you and I take an initial observation that what their final disposition was, that is to say of the body of the two thieves, is a very different final disposition of the body of our Savior. What a great work, Nicodemus and Joseph had done in order to provide the kind of burial that was the case for this crucified man, namely Jesus of Nazareth. I could interject a thought at this point that it was not unusual in the Roman Empire for those who were crucified to be given very little attention in light of their bodies. It may well be that the bodies of most crucified folks were just cast out, of, out into a valley somewhere, maybe, the Valley of Hinnom. Maybe that valley that was the garbage dump of Jerusalem. Have you ever given thought the Lord's body didn't end up there? Though He was crucified, the Lord's body didn't find its final resting place there. Nicodemus and Joseph had taken effort and initiative and investment in order to ensure that the disposition of the Lord's body was not that way. Not only that, the text says that they took courage. Courage. Have you ever found yourself facing some particular discussion or conversation or maybe a work in life that was not going to be terribly pleasant, but yet you knew it had to be done in the interest of what was in the best interest of you or someone you loved, it needed to be done, and so you took courage to accomplish it. Joseph took courage to go to Pilate and ask for that body. 
What had they just done to Jesus that killed him? What would happen to Joseph upon asking for it? Perhaps he didn't know exactly. It might be that he feared things could not turn out particularly well for him, and yet he did it. I would hope that you and I would find the courage needed when those circumstances in life arise, that we too will find the courage to do that which we know needs to be done. The element of that courage would allow me to close that slide like this. What great work those two did in light of what would be the foundational elements of the coming kingdom of our Lord. Give thought to it like this, would you? The church hadn't yet been established at the time Joseph and Nicodemus did this. But the things they did were going to provide a matter of evidence and a matter of consideration that were going to be a foundational element. When Peter stood up on Pentecost and talked about the death, burial, and resurrection of the Lord, he plainly said to them that David's corpse is still right where it was placed. But the Lord's is not. You see, they had to have some appreciation for the reality of the burial and for what followed it. And that resurrection was going to be significant to be sure. In Matthew 11, verse 11, even in regard to John the Baptist, we know what a great man he was, and yet the least in the kingdom is greater than he. I hope you and I never lose sight of how special, how honored, and how great the kingdom of the Lord is. And yet these two, Joseph and Nicodemus, at that time were not members of it. What well, might be a second observation? Another one that could at least challenge us. I've already mentioned the issue about courage. Let's develop that a little more thoroughly. And let's do it like this. The Jews were those who struck a great amount of fear into the life of many people at this particular time. You and I can likely think of many examples. Many individuals who were prompted by fear to do certain things or not to do others. In Matthew 15, I'm sorry, Mark 15, 43, the word courage is connected to what these two had done relative to the burial of our Lord. One of the verses I've asked you to consider is John 7, verse 13. We notice there that something was said to be a part and something to be related to the fear of the Jews. The Jews carried such weight, such influence, such significance that what they decreed and dictated often meant a great matter as to what one would or would not do. Do you recall that one of the greatest fears any Jew would have was being cast out of the synagogue? We read that in John 12, verses 41 and 42. You and I know that Nicodemus certainly was a ruler of the Jews and had a great respectful place in the synagogue. And here he was, he took the liberty to step out on a matter of courage and help the burial of Jesus. Would he be thrown out of the synagogue for that? Something to think about, isn't it? Joseph of Arimathea. Was he too a man of great respect among the Jews? Based on the description, the answer has to be yes. Would he be cast out of the synagogue? These two took a risk. 
Joseph and Nicodemus risked everything about their position in light of having a role to play in assuring a proper burial of the body of Jesus. May I ask, their faith had to be significant. Their trustworthiness and their conviction had to be rather notable. It surely reminds us somewhat of what the centurion had said. Truly, this man, speaking of Jesus, was the Son of God. These two, Joseph and Nicodemus, too, must have had great conviction. You may look near the bottom of that slide and highlight this. Serving Jesus Christ our Lord today will demand courage in you and me. The world is not going to approve in so many ways the very things for which you and I stand. In so many ways the world will not give us a thumbs up of approval for the stances that we take the positions we defend, and the things to which we give the fullest assurance of our life. But that won't deter us. And there may be times that public question may arise. Direct personal conversation and discussion and even disagreement may ensue. It may take courage on you and me. It may require it in order to continue in faith. Now, we aren't alarmed by the thought of it because the Word of God so often testifies it. But it is a constant reminder that God's people have often been called upon to suffer, to face it, and to encourage, respond, and dedication to it. I'm reminded of 2 Timothy 3, verse 12, how about you? Yea, and all that will live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. It's to be sure there are times in the history of the world when that persecution is less intense and there are times it's more. You and I know that we currently are living in a time when the persecution is not as intense as some of our brothers and sisters in past eras have experienced. But you and I know that it would appear that the intensity is increasing. The intensity is ramping up in its urgency. May you and I continue to grasp and cling tightly to the Lord who died for us. As you and I close that slide, what will be a third remark, a third observation that might be worthy to make? Under the banner of sacrifice, under the banner of this which I've entitled sacrifice, did you notice what Nicodemus did? It's easy enough to read past it. The text that Brother Dennis read earlier reminded us that Nicodemus brought 75 pounds of myrrh and aloes to anoint the body of Jesus, John 19, 39. 75 pounds. We all know roughly how much that is. Could I remind you that Mary, in an earlier passage, in John chapter 12, had brought 12 ounces. And you might recall that a comment was made by Judas at that time that that was enough to accomplish certain things. And that was connected, you see, to only a matter of 300 pence. I hope you give some thought to the investment Nicodemus made. 75 pounds. That would, according to what that value was, that would have been several decades worth of value. I'm not talking about a month's work, even a year. I'm talking decades. Doesn't that indicate to us how rich Joseph may have been as well as Nicodemus and what they chose to use it for? 
that's absolutely stupendous. That's absolutely remarkable. Would you have been willing to invest that amount of your savings to accomplish something like this? Would I? It surely is a testimony to the conviction that was theirs, to the choice that was theirs, and to their belief in who Jesus was. It surely reminds each of us the conviction to the Lord, the sacrifice connected to His service, would likely lead us to close that slide this way. The Sanhedrin council was no minor thing. And it was so that their decisions were taken as final. These two were likely going to suffer notably. Could I offer to you and me our love for the Lord will demand sacrifice of us as well. We can't love this world. 1 John 2.15 still tells us that. And so the, the pursuit of possessions ultimately... And the things that often come with it, we may have to sacrifice much to be called a child of God. Some of the things that that sacrifice may involve sometimes is so hurtful. There are loved ones that you and I may have to face and say, your marriage isn't right, you know, and urge them in love to think carefully about the ultimate nature of their soul. There may be other things. Maybe those that we love are given to covetousness. We have to urge them and maybe help them. And they may not like it. They may, in fact, ultimately turn their back upon us. But you see, you and I know that there's something more important than physical association here. It's our soul salvation and theirs. And yet, as you and I find conviction in light of the Word of God, may we perhaps reflect upon what Joseph and what Nicodemus chose to do. As you and I close that slide, what about one more? What about this one connected to the entitlement I've given? The messiness of service. The messiness of service. To deal with a corpse is not the funnest thing, I'm sure, that a person's called upon to do. If you've had opportunity to have discussion with those who embalm bodies, there are things you deal with. There are aspects and features of the human body. There is the oozing of fluids. There is other things, and I'll go into no more details. But it's easy to imagine. May I say that Joseph and Nicodemus took care of this. The issues connected, you see, to what they did was not the most pleasant of choices. And it wasn't the most pleasant of activities. Messy, to be sure. There was odor involved. There was smell involved. There was other matters connected to that which comes forth from the body. Yet they did it. Is it sometimes true that service to the Lord for you and I may involve an element of messiness? There are things in the church that require your attention and mine on occasion related to our brothers and our sisters and the lives which they live and that may require effort and labor and work and messiness on your part and mine but due to our conviction for the Lord you and I recall in John 13 he took a basin of water and washed the feet of the disciples. Did they stink? 
I'm guessing they did. Most of our feet don't smell the grandest in the world, at least until we wash them. And our Savior washed their feet. And one of the last matters of that teaching for you and me is that what you've seen, you go and do likewise. Now, He wasn't teaching us to wash each other's feet in worship. That text alone identifies that truth. But what He was teaching us was a willingness, a mindset, a disposition such that we are servants to the King. And that service involves us aiding our brothers and sisters, and yea, aiding others whom we know in such a way that we can set forward before them the example of Jesus who died for them and the service which He was willing to render. Joseph and Nicodemus, you notice how they served as well. Sometimes that service can come in the most innocent of ways. In Matthew 10, verse 42, even the giving of a cup of cold water in His name may render a tremendous aid and service to His cause. On other occasions, that service, as these two have done, involved a great deal more. At the very least, I think we could each be reminded in Zechariah 4.10, we're reminded never to neglect or overlook the power and value of small things. Surely, the burial took place of the body of our Lord. And these two did a great work in accomplishing it. As you and I close this particular slide, as well as the features of our study this morning, doesn't it highlight in us a reminder of the greatness of the work that these two did? And the lessons we have drawn from it have at least connected to these. The courage that was theirs. The great work that they accomplished even in the light of personal sacrifice. And finally, the issue connected to the messiness or unpleasantness from a physical standpoint that sometimes comes along with service to the Lord. We have so much to be reminded of in light of what these two have done. I hope they've prompted us in our service. They've encouraged us in our faith. And they have helped us see what those two did, laid a foundation in many ways for what the testimony of the apostles could be. The body is no longer there, but they knew where Nicodemus and Joseph had placed it. And so the resurrection, which we'll study soon enough, takes on a highlighted tone, doesn't it? Today, as we draw this lesson to a close, may each of us examine our faith, whether we are in fact in the faith. That wording is found in 2 Corinthians 13, 5. Today, if you're not a faithful member of the body of Christ... It may be that you've never become a Christian. Upon reflection of what we've studied today and what the Lord accomplished for you, maybe you have come to realize that you'd like to become a Christian. May I say there's no finer life on earth. And it is the life that has eternal promise and joy connected to it. The gospel plan of salvation is a sweet and great truth. Believing in the Lord, repenting of your sins confessing the majesty of His name as a Son of God and being baptized for the remission of your sins. We today can not only assist in that, but encourage you as you begin the Christian walk. If you, though, have known the way of Christ and you have lived in a while in that way, but maybe as of today, you know that decisions and choices in life have brought you to a place and time that all is not well with your soul. 
we want you to know the Lord still loves you. And the Bible is a constant testimony that He wishes nobody to be lost. 1 Timothy 2 verse 4. If today we could help you in return to your first love, you need to repent of those sins, make confession of them, and we'd be honored to go to God in prayer on your behalf. Today we could help in those ways and we'd be delighted to do it. Brother Larry has chosen this song of encouragement, and if we could assist at this time, we encourage you to come while together we stand and while we sing.